Good evening, members and guests of the Australian Institute of International Affairs of Western Australia. Thank you very much for joining us today on this very uh, on this on a very short notice on very short notice for this webinar on the background and implications of the announcement of the creation of AUKUS and Australia's decision to acquire nuclear propelled submarines, what many are calling the country's most significant security and defense decision in close to 70 years. Before we go any further, I wish to acknowledge the traditional custodians on the land on which I'm speaking from, the Wajak people of the Noongar Nation. I wish to acknowledge and respect their continuing culture and the contribution they make to the life of this city, Perth, and this region where I'm living in Western Australia. We have a great panel assembled here and I would like to thank them sincerely for making time to share their insights. If you have logged on to the webinar, I'm assuming you are acquainted with our panel, but just briefly, we have Hugh White, AO, who is one of Australia's most recognized defense policy thinkers, having been a journalist, senior policy advisor to ministers and a prime minister, a senior civil servant in the defense portfolio, a head of the think tank ASPE, and an academic publishing several seminal books in this area. He's currently an emeritus professor of strategic studies at the Australian National University. Susanna Patton is a research fellow in the foreign policy and defense program at the United States Study Center in Sydney. She joined the United States Study Center from the Australian government where she was until 2020 a senior analyst in the Southeast Asia branch of the Office of National Intelligence, Australia's peak intelligence assessment agency. Prior to that, she worked in the prime minister and cabinet department and in DFAT, during which time she served at the Australian embassy in Bangkok. Professor Peter J. Dean was appointed as UWA's first chair of defense studies in July, 2020, and is the inaugural director of the UWA Defense and Security Institute since March 2021. Peter has an extensive background in military and defense studies. Before joining UWA, Peter was a scholar at the Strategic and Defense Studies Center at the ANU. He taught Australian defense policy at the Australian Command and Staff College, and he spent 12 years as a member of the Australian Army Reserve with postings to infantry commando and training units. He has written extensively about Australian strategic and defense issues and is on the editorial board of several renowned publications in the field. To start the discussion, I'll invite each of the speakers to share with us their thoughts on the question of this evening. What is the rationale of AUKUS and the submarine decisions and the possible ramifications for Australia our region and the world. My name is Brendan Augustine, and recently I became the president of AWIWA. During the speaker's uh, comments and during the course of the discussion, please do not hesitate to type your questions in the chat room in the Q&A function that you have in your Zoom screen. I will gather the questions and put them into some thematics and which I will use to address to the speakers after they have given um, their initial thoughts. Can I now please invite Hugh White to provide his view 
on the rationale of AUKUS and the submarine decision and the possible ramifications for Australia, our region and the world. Hugh, the floor is yours. Well, uh, thank you very much, uh, Brendan. It's a great pleasure to be here. And thanks to the WA branch of AAA for making this event uh, possible. And it's also, may I say, great to share uh, this event with uh, with my old friend and colleague, Peter Dean, and with Susanna Patton. And um, uh, great to be with you all. Look, this is obviously a very big uh, event. I'm not sure whether the historians will, will, will agree with the point you made, Brendan, that many of Many people are saying that it's the biggest thing since ANZUS, but it's certainly a very big event. And what I wanted to do is just touch on what seemed to me to be its operational implications. That's, that is the implications for Australia's submarine capability of a decision to go nuclear and the, the strategic implications of that decision and the broader uh, sense of common purpose with the UK and the US are reflected uh, in the broader deal. And uh, just touch briefly on the di diplomatic implications as well. Let me talk about the operational and capability elements, because clearly, although there is a broader strategic context, the decision to move from a conventionally powered submarine to a nuclear submarine is right at the heart of the big announcement that was made last week. And, and it's quite a complicated issue because nuclear powered submarines are clearly superior to conventionally powered submarines in a number of critical ways. But the question for us is not whether nuclear powered submarines are better but whether they're more cost-effective for Australia in what we need our submarines to do. And I think when we think about that, we have to look at questions of the performance of the boat, of the timing which the boats will come into service, and of the risks that are involved in taking this step. On the performance side, and I want to, don't want to get too far into the depths and details of submarine operations, but it is important to touch on this a bit. On the performance side, the thing about nuclear-powered submarines is that they're faster they're faster underwater and they're, in, and they're quieter in some situations, in some circumstances. That's, they're the advantages. The disadvantages is that they're more expensive, a, a lot more expensive. And that means that for any given level of investment, we have fewer of them. And that does make a difference because numbers are always critical in military operations as well as the performance of the individual platform. So which of those best? Whether the advantages that the, that the nuclear-powered submarines have in speed versus the advantage that conventional submarines have in the numbers we could have available depends a lot on what we're trying to do with them. And I think the simplest way to talk about that is that there are two great visions of the way in which Australia approaches defence. One, one is the idea, which really goes back almost to the beginnings of our history, that, that our primary strategic objective, what we want our armed forces to do, is to support allies in, the, in fighting their wars, so they'll then look after us. And the other big conception is the opposite of that. That is, we build forces not to support our allies, but to defend ourselves directly. And as, to, as it transpires, the choice between nuclear-powered submarines and conventionally-powered submarines depends on which of those visions you're, you're choosing to favour. If our primary objective over the decades to come is to support the United States in military operations against China, in the military operations that the United States would want to undertake against China, then I think nuclear-powered submarines make a lot of sense because we need to deploy a long way forward, a long way from Australia, so the speed that they can travel is more important, and we and we'd need to operate in circumstances where their greater stealth under some circumstances, the fact that they're quieter and harder to find, would be a really distinctive advantage. But if, on the other hand, we think of ourselves defending ourselves primarily independently, we think of our armed force 
in, in that way, which is the way we've primarily thought about our armed forces since the Vietnam War, then I would argue the conventional submarines make more sense because we'd have more of them. Probably on the kind of costings we can see three times as many. For the same money that we appear to be able to buy eight nuclear powered submarines, we could buy 24 or 25 conventionally powered submarines. And I would argue that um, that, that, that advantage in numbers outweighs the disadvantage in speed uh, compared to nuclear powered boats. The second big factor to bear in mind is timing. Now, one of the problems with the French project, which we've all been wrestling with, is that it was delivering submarines very slowly. One of the big problems with the decision to go nuclear is that we're going to deliver submarines even slower. Whereas I think, particularly as, as our strategic circumstances are deteriorating pretty quickly, I think we need to get submarines a lot faster. On the plans that were outlined, sketched by the Prime Minister last week, the first of the new nuclear-powered boats that they're talking about might come into service sometime around uh, 2043. And that means that the eighth boat would come, wouldn't come into service until somewhere around 2060, 2060. Now, that's just too far away, particularly it's too far away when our existing boats are getting very old, the Collins-class boats, and we're in very grave danger of finding ourselves in a situation where even though we're going to upgrade the Collins-class boats, they will, at the end of their upgrade, leave, this, leave service before the new submarines are available and we'll lose a submarine capability. I think that's a very serious possibility indeed. And the third issue that I think weighs against the nuclear-powered submarines is risk. Nuclear propulsion is a very sophisticated and complex technology. It's a particularly challenging technology for Australia because we have a, considering how much uranium we have in the country, we have very slender resources in nuclear engineering. And our Navy has very has no experience in this area. It will be immensely demanding and therefore immensely risky to move to this kind of technology. And that raises the possibility that our submarines will be so plagued with technical and safety problems and so on that they won't be able to deliver effective war, war fighting forces. For all of those reasons, I think on, the, on straight capability grounds that this is the wrong move, that we would be better off working to find a better, more appropriate, easier, cheaper, conventionally powered submarine. So I think the government was right to walk away from the French deal, wrong to walk away in such, an, in such an undiplomatic fashion, but right to walk away from it, but wrong to go to nuclear submarines instead. We, we, there are lots of ways we could get a really good force and a much bigger force of conventional boats much faster, which would suit us better. Let me then talk about the strategic implications briefly. Um, you know, right at the heart of of, of last week's announcements was a clear desire by the government to draw us closer to the United States and closer to the United Kingdom strategically, as well as in the specific development of submarine capabilities. And I guess we can understand that as China becomes more threatening. It's understandable that we do, in a sense, what Australia has always done, and that is reach out to our great and powerful friends to try and help protect us. The question for us is, whether that strategy is going to work. Now, let me just very briefly be very dismissive about, uh, about the United Kingdom. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think Britain has any significant strategic role to play in, this, in, in the Western Pacific in the decades to come. It hasn't had a significant strategic role to play in the Western Pacific since it withdrew east of Suez in 1968. And that was when China had, a, had an economy smaller than Australia's. 
Today, with the scale of China's power, uh, England's, Britain's capacity to, to project strategically significant amounts of uh, strategic weight into this part of the world is zero. And, and so I think the idea that somehow Britain's going to become, become again another one of our great and powerful friends as it was in the 19th and part of the 20th century is I think a fantasy. America, of course, is a different proposition. America is going to remain an immensely powerful country. But whether it's smart for us as we face the challenges posed by China, the very real challenges posed by China, to draw ourselves closer and closer to America in addressing that problem depends on how confident we are that the Americans know how to make this work, know how to solve the China problem. And I think it's very unlikely that they do. That's because China is the most formidable country the United States has ever confronted on the, on the, the most important raw foundation of national power, the size of its economy. China is more formidable than any country the United States has ever faced. And when I look at what the United States has done in the 10 years, as it is in a couple of months' time, since Barack Obama came to Canberra to announce the pivot, when we look at what the United States has done since they declared China a strategic rival in December 2017, and look at the way in which how effectively America has really fronted up to that challenge, it doesn't look to me like the United States knows how to handle this. And I think there's a very significant risk that over the years to come, and I might say long before the first of our nuclear-powered submarines would ever enter service, that I think there's a very significant chance that the United States will fail to contain China in one of two ways. Either it will look at this problem, see it's too hard and withdraw. And I think in some ways the historians will judge that's what they're doing already. Or it will find itself caught up in a strategic situation, an escalating crisis which it can't avoid, and it ends up going to war with China. And that's a war I don't believe the United States can win. So for Australia to, to, to base our future, and it is our future, our future security and prosperity here in Asia where we've chosen to live, on the proposition that the United States from across the other side of the Pacific can manage our China problem for us is, I think, way too optimistic. And the last point I just touch on it diplomatically, and I think Cesar in particular knows a lot more about this than I do, but I, I do think that one of the risks for us, quite apart from the very undiplomatic way we manage the transition with the French, which I think was a serious mistake, is that this this, this approach, both operationally by choosing nuclear-powered submarines and strategically by aligning ourselves more closely with the United States in a new Cold War with China, we're making it harder for us to work with the countries of Asia, particularly the countries of Southeast Asia, which seem to me really are the secret for us managing our future in the Asian century in the face of Chinese and, for that matter, Indian, uh, India's growing power. So for that reason, I think diplomatically as well, we've taken the wrong step. I'll, I'll, end there. I'll end there, Brendan, thank you. Thank you very much, Hugh, and uh, that's a great segue to, uh, to you, Susanna, um, and for you to give us your initial thoughts uh, on, on the implications, the rationale and the implications for these extremely important decisions that have been taken. Thank you very much, Brendan, and thank you to the AAA of Western Australia for hosting this event. Um, I thought I'd start with an observation about the way the discussion has unfolded since the AUKUS announcement, and then I'll focus on a couple of aspects of the decision. And the observation is this, that since the announcement, the Australian and the international debate about this topic has been characterised by two features. 
One is a high degree of certainty about what it means, and the other is a high degree of disagreement. So analysts have been very definitive about um, what it means for Australia. Either it heralds the end of Australian sovereignty and our ability to independently defend ourselves, or the beginning of a more assertive and capable Australia. For Asia, this is the start of a balancing coalition against China, or the certain prospect of war for America, American commitment to Asia or no evidence of that at all. And that kind of combination of confident predictions uh, tells me that we're at a really uncertain period. So with that kind of very humble framing, I thought I would focus my comments on two questions that I think are genuinely uncertain. And I'll, I'll leave aside the questions of defence capability because I know that Peter will also address those. Um, so I think the most important question is what does uh, what does AUKUS say about America's commitment to Asia? Um, as Hugh said, uh, uh, you know, basically America can't fight geography or, or economic gravity. So the question for Australia is really whether or not the United States will remain committed to a kind of balancing role that will serve our interests. And how effectively is it going to be able to pull other important countries into some kind of balancing coalition? And Australia has now for some time sought to embed that US role in the region on the defence side through initiatives like the Force Posture announcement in 2011, and on the diplomatic side by encouraging the US to remain engaged in meetings like APEC and the East Asia Summit. Um, but as Hugh said, uh, 10 years after the announcement of the rebalance, there are good reasons to be quite dubious about whether or not the US is really bringing the right level of focus and commitment to the region. Even under the Biden administration, for all its Asia expertise and all its normalcy after the Trump years, um, there's been a strong sense in the first few months that the administration did not seem to recognise the urgency of the regional challenges. It largely conceptualised the challenge of competition with China as a global challenge and seemed to relatively neglect the urgency of the situation in Asia. My colleagues and I at the US Study Centre put out a month or so, put out a report a month or so ago called Correcting the Course, where we identified what the US needed to do if it was to have an effective Indo-Pacific strategy. Um, and one of the key points was that the United States needed to do much more to empower allies like Australia, in particular by providing access to defence industry. I think on that score, AUKUS really demonstrates that the United States is willing to do new and unexpected things um, to address the strategic situation in the Indo-Pacific um, and to empower an ally like Australia. Um, it was also accompanied by the strongest messaging that we've seen to date from President Biden about the necessity of um, maintaining a balance in the Indo-Pacific for the sake of the United States global and national interests, um, which I think is quite encouraging. Um, combined with the fact that we now have the Quad meeting at leaders level, although that's not a defence grouping, it shows a willingness of very important countries in our region to work together, uh, something that many doubted would ever come to pass to the extent that it already has. Um, and I think that says something about um, the possibilities that still remain for American statecraft. 
Um, but obviously gaps still remain that call into question um, US commitment and in particularly on the economic side, which is more politically challenging. Um, there's still no sign since the US withdrawal from the Trans-Pacific Partnership in 2017 that the US really sees that its economic interests in Asia are so great as to motivate it to rejoin um, those economic groupings. And I think that should be quite concerning for Australia. Um, so my second question that I was going to address is where does the AUKUS arrangement leave Australia's relationships in Asia? And the answer to that question really stems from the first, which is to say that Australia is now a fully paid up member of the emerging US balancing coalition in Asia. But many countries in the region, especially in Southeast Asia, are not and may never join such a coalition. Um, that explains, I think, the hesitancy that we've seen from some countries in Southeast Asia about the AUKUS arrangement. Um, Indonesia and Malaysia in particular have voiced concerns that AUKUS increases regional tensions, creates a military buildup and makes conflict more likely. For some in the Australian government, I think that kind of view is quite exasperating because of course, China is undergoing a very rapid military modernization and expanding its Navy much faster than the United States, let alone Australia. Um, but in my view, Indonesia and Malaysia's concerns are not really the result of bad diplomacy necessarily on Australia's side, although arguably that didn't help us, but rather they proceed from quite fundamentally different conceptions of what will make the regional environment more stable and more likely to avoid a conflict. For Australia, our threat perception about China and our faith in the United States as a benign actor, I think leads us naturally to want to ally more closely with Washington and to support balancing arrangements. But by contrast, some countries in Southeast Asia are much more likely to see both China and the United States as, raging, as raising regional tensions and making conflict more likely. So where does that leave Australia's relationship, relationships with the region? I think we really urgently need to find a way to get back to a sort of two-tone foreign policy. Um, that, to take the Prime Minister's words from last week, does have a bet each way so that we prioritise our relationships with regional countries, especially Indonesia, at the same time as doing what we can to give a US balancing coalition in Asia the best chance of succeeding. Thank you, Susanna. Uh and um, our next speaker is, of course, Peter Dean. Um, can I invite you to uh, to give your initial thoughts, Peter? Sure. And um, I get the great problem or benefit of coming after my two esteemed colleagues here. So what I thought I might do is sort of uh, respond to some of their um, uh, particular points and areas and, and expand on those as a way to sort of lead into, I suppose, some more questions and stuff. Um, as one of those uh, defence capability boffins, um, I, I, I'll get into that part of the debate along with Hugh. Um, Hugh and I have spent I don't know how many hours debating and discussing submarines over the years. It's one of the great topics of Australian defence history and policy. Anyone who touches it can't avoid going anywhere near the almost third rail of Australian defence policy, which is what to do about submarines. Um, Absolutely agree. They, they are faster. They are quieter in some circumstances, but, but in others not. Um, they are more expensive. But I think on the expense issue, uh, we have to look at the fact we're looking at conventional submarines. And 
you know, there's a lot to unpack about the last eight or nine years of failed decisions by our government. You know, were we going to have a Japanese submarine? Were we not? You know, a competitive evaluation process that deliberately excluded an evolved Collins-class submarine, which, talking to a lot of people, was the most obvious and logical, cheap, conventional-powered submarine alternative that probably would have got us there a lot quicker, as Hugh said. I mean, the capability questions. Um, but then we get to the sort of, you know, the nuclear point. And when you, when you get to a conventionally powered submarine that the attack class was at $50 billion, like every, there was a lot of eyebrows raised. And I know some other colleagues at ASPE had done some fun, you know, numbers on this. And when they originally came out with numbers in the mid 30 billion, people started scratching their head. Then we got to 50 billion. And of course, most recently, we got to $90 billion for these 12 conventional powered submarines. Um, and, and we're getting into the realm of ludicrous in terms of costs here. How much, how much more nuclear-powered submarines cost? Well, that's, that's the great question. It's going to be more than $90 billion. The government's committed to that. It's going to be less submarines, as Hughes pointed out, but we don't know what that answer, that, the answer to that question is, and, we, and it's going to be very hard for us to tell, you what the, tell us and figure out what the value for money proposition is going to be for a very long time. Um, conventional submarines, as Hugh said, are slower than nuclear submarines. Um, in terms of their, uh, their coming into um, operation. And, and Hugh's got an absolute point here. I mean, it was even head scratching about how long it was going to take, um, you know, conventional submarines under the attack class to come in here. And it's a real capability gap and question and problem we face. We're doing the life of type extension for the Collins class submarine. That's going to give us another 10, 15 or so years. We do know that the problems the Collins had for a long time with their maintenance meant they didn't do a lot of dives and actually dives is what's really key and important here to the integrity of the whole of the submarine. So we've got a bit of life in them, but can we get that far? Can we get to 2060 that Hugh was talking about? I mean, it's mind boggling that we're thinking that. I mean, probably the great hope and savior here is that we move from submarines to other autonomous systems that will allow us to catch up, but you can't put all your eggs in the basket of what a maybe tomorrow technology that you don't know about today. And that's not really balancing the risk in our defence policy very well. Um, fewer of them, I think, is offset by a few other comparisons. Um, range, endurance, power, weapons and the sensors, I think, is really important with them, with these here. Australia has the, you know, even if you, you look at Hughes' defence of Australia scenario, we have the third largest EEZ in the world. And while we have a smaller number of nuclear boats than we would conventional, they give extraordinarily longer range and endurance. So even if you're operating them in our near waters, which is still a long distance that they have to move from HMAS Sterling to get out into patrol area. If you, if you look at somewhere around the sort of South China Sea modeling, you know, an SSK, a diesel boat could get up to that area, to the Indonesian archipelago and spend about 11 to 15 days on patrol. Uh, a nuclear powered submarine can spend 77 days on patrol. So why you might, if you have a smaller number of them, the level of range and endurance that you have for those boats is, is quite phenomenal and a difference. So I think, I think I disagree here with you on this. I think they've got a really valuable proposition whether, uh, whether what scenario you're looking at them as a defensive Australia scenario or more engaged with our allies um, type of scenario. The other thing is I'll point out here is... Um, is power and power is becoming absolutely critical. A nuclear submarine provides you so much more power on the boat. You don't have to worry constantly about, you know, surfacing the, the boat or snorkeling the boat to recharge your engines. You don't have to husband your power as much. And power is becoming more and more important as we get into it. advanced sensors and advanced weapon systems. 
And of course, what I mentioned before, autonomous um, uh, vehicles and autonomous underwater systems that would most likely be controlled by or launched by a submarine that require a huge amounts of power to operate. So I think there's a, it's a real competitive advantage in that. That has to be off-weight and offset, as Hugh said, by numbers. You know, and as the saying goes in, in our field, sometimes uh, quantity has a quality of all its own. So that's that's a real risk. And what we're, what we're basically saying is we're going for the endurance option and that power option around the sensors and the weapon systems option to offset um, that uh, that numbers claims and numbers question as well. So I think there's a lot to be said for the different ways the boats can be. And I, I actually, I would come down on the balance a bit different to here and the balance of favour that there's just so many more advantages that we can get. And particularly as the technology involves in this particular area from the convention for, for the nuclear powered submarines. I, I agree with you on the UK question. And, and this more broadly goes to the, the European um, Indo-Pacific strategy, uh, the Germans. The Germans have got a frigate um, in the, in the Indo-Pacific at the moment. And it, what's happening with that frigate, the Bayonne, is just symptomatic of the modelled approach the EU has to the Indo-Pacific. This, this frigate was not going to visit China, but then it was going to visit China. So then they asked them, the Chinese said no. And now it's a diplomatic embarrassment for the, for the Germans. It, they made it very clear that they were going to go into the South China Sea, you know, because it's about freedom of navigation, but not go in anywhere near any area that was contested or that anyone had any claim on or any way, shape and the form. So that's really a question. And of course, the British sent the, the new aircraft carrier into the region. And what the Chinese know is they could look at it and wave it as it went past and get very upset and know that it will sail off into the distance and be lucky to come back in 12 months time for a few days. Like there's, there's no enduring and staying power. Now, I don't think that doesn't mean that the European countries don't have a role to play in the region, that they don't have a role to play of holding everybody to account on the rules-based international order and the types of maritime questions that we want to have. But Hugh's right on this. They don't have at the hard power end, they don't have that engagement and longevity. Their role is going to be much more of a diplomatic role, much more of a role in the region around other questions around engagement on technology, on infrastructure, on trade, on investment and other questions. And But we, there are severe limitations that I have on, on that other element as well. On the US, I'm a little bit more optimistic on the, on the US on some elements, but not so much on, on others. I certainly agree with Susanna's points that she made about the very strong moves that the Biden administration have made. And the US has a, a long history of taking a while to think about and then organise itself and get directed towards its strategic goals. It tends to be a lot slower in doing these things, but when it does ramp up and find direction, it can be very effective and it's proven to be very effective. And of course, it's got that great advantage of having allies in the region, of being able to engage with other people into the region quite successfully. But where I have grave concerns about the United States, and this is from someone who's lived there twice, been a Fulbright scholar, and, and is, you know, has been there all the time. The question I, I don't know the answer and none of us I think know the answer for is Trump the aberration or is Biden the aberration? We just don't know. And US domestic politics are going to be key. We've seen that whether it's a Trump or Biden view, they're going to certainly take a contest um, and competition approach to, um, to China. But how they play that out in their, in their strategy, I'm not sure. But what I think the advantages of AUKUS and, and this arrangement is for Australia is around that technology sharing. Um, I don't buy into these um, concerns people have about the sovereignty question. If you look at nuclear-powered submarines, for instance, um, you know, India's purchased and, and had technology from Russia. 
We've certainly had uh, deep integration in our Air Force and the fifth generation Air Force that we have and other technologies. We're the only country in the world that, that operates some US technological systems and we've been able to maintain what Penny Wong talked about in terms of strategic autonomy. I think we will we'll be able to maintain that as long as we're very clear in our relationships um, with the United States. And I have to say, some of the language I do find though disturbing, the concept of a forever alliance or an unbreakable alliance is something I'm deeply uncomfortable about in, in the rhetoric because it's simply untrue. <laughs> um, you know, we cannot guarantee what Australian body politic would be like or the US body politic would be like. And of course, um, this unbreakable or never ending alliance also uh, overlooks the deep history we have of disagreements in our alliance relationships with different countries based on our different interests. And if we start to get into a political rhetoric here that there is no difference between strategic interests of our countries, well then, you know, you put at risk the very alliance relationship when we have even the smallest of disagreements, which we have had in the past and we will continue to do so in the future. That's the nature of, of international politics. Um, I certainly agree, certainly with Susanna's points around Southeast Asia and the, and the broader engagement. Um, I think, the dip diplomacy around this has been overblown on one factor. Uh, you know, I, I find it a little bit tiresome of hearing countries saying, well, we weren't consulted on this. But honestly, with something as sensitive as this, you know, you're not going to go out and consult all the countries of the Pacific and the rest of the region. However, the, the, the government was very ham-fisted in how they, they dealt with the diplomacy of this, how they dealt with the diplomacy with France, how they dealt with the diplomacy with Indonesia. I mean, you would have thought we would have learned from last time about the last forced posture um, agreements that Hugh mentioned under the Gillard government, where we got that wrong with Indonesia as well. Um, we didn't get on the front foot into the region, um, but the region is very split, as Susanna said. You know, the Singaporeans have supported it. The, the Filipinos have supported it. Japan has, India has, a number of other countries, but others have raised concerns. So it's a real, it's a real mixed bag. Um, just a couple of little final points. On, on a sort of arms racing question, I, I do find... <laughs> that somewhat reasonably laughable. I mean, China has undertaken one of the largest military modernization programs in modern history. It built 18 major capital warships in the last 12 months alone. That's more than the size of the RAN's capital fleet um, that we hold in our entire um, Navy. I mean, this is a naval building program that would have made Kaiser Wilhelm blush, to be honest. Um, now, uh, how that plays out in reality and how that plays out over the long term and how sustainable that is for the PIN um, is another question and how much that can be balanced out. But as Susanna pointed out, there is starting to be a bit of a, a quantitative difference, at least here um, um, in the region between um, uh, all of this. The last thing I'll finish on is what I want to emphasise is despite what the media keep telling us, AUKUS is not an alliance. It is not. It is a technological, technological sharing agreement, and it's you know it, it could be maybe described as a security pact. If you actually read what that very short document, and this is part of I think the problem with AUKUS, it's such a short document the government released. There's no detail around it, so it's invited, you know, for everyone else to to fill the blank space. But what it does talk about is quantum technologies, biotechnology, artificial intelligence, space, cyber, data theft disinformation and propaganda, foreign interference, economic coercion, attacks on critical infrastructure, supply change disruptions, industrial sharing that Susanna mentioned, which are all key. Now, these are key around uh, competition, not just with China, 
but with China, the US, the EU, and most of the countries around the world. This is really where we're expanding and racing to outperform each other. This is where I think there might be some real critical value in the UK being involved in this. This is actually not about the hard power of the UK. This is about um, engagement with their industrial sector, engagement with their universities, engagement um, with those in a trilateral sense, and, and we'll see how that plays out. But you know, that's been a really important part of AUKUS that I think has been largely lost in all the discussion because nuclear submarines have, have dominated it. So I'll, I'll end there um, and we can go to some questions, but that's sort of my two cents worth. Fantastic. Thanks very much. And you ended where I was going to start, because I think looking at the questions, we have three or four themes uh, emerging. Um, one is on the capability and the technical side of things. Um, and I'll start with Mark Beeson's question. And, and coming from Mark, it won't surprise you that why subs at all? Uh, and, uh, you know, do we do we need on two counts? Do we need to arm ourselves with subs as part of our defense capability? It's you know so, some sort of an existential question or should we be using those um, scarce resources to do something else to strengthen the, the country as a whole, socially, economically uh, and the like to be to, to have a more holistic defense? That's, that's I guess, at, at a high level. And then secondly, if we are going to get subs, um, and if the reason is as a deterrent, and if our deterrence at the end of the day is our, is our, is our allies, our alliance with the US, do we have to fork out this amount of money? Won't the US be engaged anyway? So I guess um, those, I, I've gathered up a few questions and sort of grouped them into in to those two. Um, maybe I can pass back to you, Hugh, to, to have the first go at that. Sure. Thanks, Brendan. Um, we're blooding some pretty deep water there, a very important water. Um, so look, let me make, do we, do we need subs? Let me just address that at two different levels. The first is the question as to whether or not Australia really needs to think of itself as a middle power, the sort of country that can, that can back up its diplomacy with armed force, or should we, can we conceive ourselves more as a small power, which you might call the New Zealand model? Of, um, of international posture. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't think there's a, we should have a glib answer to that. Australia has always aimed to be a middle power, but whether it's sensible for Australia to aim to be a middle power in the decades to come is not something I think we should take for granted. But my own view is that we should, because I, I think we are gonna be working in a more difficult environment and I think a more dangerous environment, an, an environment which will be more challenging, I think, than any we've ever known, because I'm, I myself am un, I'm not confident that the United States is going to succeed in achieving that balancing coalition, which is going to manage and uh, and contain China's power. I think China is going to end up as a dominant power in the Western Pacific and East Asia. I think India will end up as a dominant power in South Asia. I don't think the United States will play any very significant role. We will therefore be much more on our own than we've ever been before. And although I don't think armed force is the only or even necessarily the most important element in, in the way we deal with that. I think we'd be very optimistic to imagine that we would never face military pressure from one or other of these great powers, or for that matter, from Indonesia, which could well be a great power itself. So I, tend to, I do tend to think we should take the middle power approach. Within that approach, are submarines important? I think they are for, for this simple reason. It sounds a bit trite to say it, but we are an island. 
And not just we're an island, but all our neighbours are islands. We have one of the most maritime strategic environments of any country in the world. And submarines have unique capacity to achieve operational effects at sea at long range because they're so invulnerable. Ships in which we're spending a lot of money, I think wasting a lot of money, are, are, are I think a declining military asset because they're so easy to find and so easy to hit. Submarines are really valuable because they're so stealthy, they're so hard to find. And so I think submarines do play a very important part in any Australian uh, military, military strategy. The second question about whether, whether or not we really need to do all of this because we can rely on the US goes back to the point I just made. For a long time, Australia has been able to base its entire defence posture on the proposition that the United States will remain the dominant power in East Asia. It will prevent any major power posing a threat to Australia. And if nonetheless a major power threat does emerge, the United States will be sure to be there to support us. That's been the way it's been for a long time. And I think that's right. I think that was right. But I don't think we can rely on that in future because going back to something I said earlier, I think we are in a different era now. China is not just another Asian power. It's, it's the most powerful Asian nation since European settlement of Australia. We've never lived in an Asia with an Asian power like this. And India will be the same in a couple of decades time. So the lessons that we draw from the role that alliances have played in our history until now are not going to be much use to us in the decades to come. So if we, I don't think, I don't think we can rely on the, on the, on the US to be a, a deterrent for us or the UK. I think if we want to be able to defend ourselves from military pressure from a great power, we're going to have to do it ourselves. And that's where submarines I think are really important. Thanks you. Maybe with another element of, of, of a question that's come in as well from Patrick Moore um, around the nuclear option, uh, and I'll address this to you, Peter, uh, about the training of um, the personnel and the added um, complexities associated with um, a nuclear fleet, a nuclear pro propelled fleet. Yeah, look, I think either way that we were going, whether the conventional boats or the nuclear boats, what was very clear is that the Navy had to get bigger. The Navy would have to invest considerably in uh, its people. You know, part of the fundamental inputs to capability are the people who run, operate and maintain these boats. And we've seen the problems that we had in the past around maintaining and operating the Collins-class submarine. We, you know, we got that fixed around sort of 2011, 20, 2012. We went from having, you know, pretty much one to zero boats in the water and operational up to five or five or six. But that was a considerable investment. Whether you're on Hughes' model of having 24 submarines or sort of somewhere in between of, of eight to 12, I, I honestly think if you're going to go down this and use this as our you know, major deterrent capability, and I totally agree with everything Hughes said about the importance of submarines to our defence. I think eight's probably not enough, <laughs> certainly nowhere near quick enough. Um, and I said, we, we might have to look at a leasing option for this, but the question of a leasing option is if you look at the US and UK shipyards, they can't build their own nuclear powered submarines quick enough. You know, the US are, are building them as fast as they can. So it would, and that would, you know, raises the whole question of the sovereign industrial capacity of Australia and are they going to be built here or what that means for industry policy, which is basically defence industry policy. But crewing the submarines are going to be a little bit harder. I've had a number of conversations with submariners in the last few weeks to get their view. And the general view I've got from them, this, you know, the advent of nuclear submarines, I think, is going to solve their um, 
their recruitment problem. They think this is going to drive people to want to stay in the Navy, drive people to want to join the Navy to get involved in this. But they understand it's an enormous hurdle. So both in training the crews for the submarines, but in the technology. But this is at the very heart of what AUKUS is about. And this is the key coming back to the technology transfer point of view. The US are the masters of submarine nuclear technology. They have been light years ahead of every, everyone else. They haven't had an issue with nuclear propelled submarines from a maintenance or security safety point of view, going back to the kind of nine, early 1960s um, or thereabouts. They only shared this technology once. That was in 58, 59 with the UK to get them up and running. If they do follow through on the principles of this agreement about the technology sharing, and we've seen this in other capabilities as well, this is what will allow Australia to bridge the gap between not having a nuclear domestic power industry and being able to operate these boats safely and securely. It's a big gap, as Hugh pointed out. It's an enormous gap. It is actually you know, one of these national infrastructure challenges. This is not a challenge for Navy. This is not a challenge for a part of the defense, even the ADF. This is a national infrastructure challenge for our country. This is a 100 to $150 billion investment that we'll have to make as a nation that will bring jobs, will bring capability. Um, and I think as you, you know, pointed out, I mean, in the university sector that, that we work in, there's not a lot of people who do nuclear engineering yet. In fact, there's only one course at UNSW where they do some nuclear engineering. And I only know two ADF personnel who have that qualification from that particular program. We do have 20 years. The one thing that the time buys us, it risks our capability issue, but it does buy us time to develop that infrastructure and to those people. The question he raises, which is critically important, is it coming too late for the deterioration of our strategic circumstances? That's, that's one of the key questions. Great. There's been a, quite a number of questions on the regional implications of this, and, I, and, and I'll, I'll put this to you, Susanna. The one is, uh, I think you've covered it a little, a little bit in your introductory comments, is, is how different countries in the region um, manage or try to manage, constrain, try to constrain, contain, or try to contain China. And it does appear to some, uh, a lot of observers that countries like Vietnam, notwithstanding um, their long-standing conflicts uh, with, Viet uh, with China um, and Indonesia, uh, also with you know, very strong emotional tensions um, with, with China, appear to be doing a better job than Australia. Um, is there something that, that, that we can learn, Australia can learn, or is it they play a different game than what we are? We are playing Aussie rules and they're playing soccer. Yeah, it's an interesting question. And, and often Australia is told that we should be more like Japan in the way that we manage our relationship with China. But I think for me, you know, the answer to that question really comes down to the fact that Australia is, is a democracy. It's a country where we want our government to have the sort of maximum international space in which to pursue the policies that we have elected them to implement. So, you know, in relation to the relationship with China, for example, there are certain things that Australians um, probably don't want our government to have to compromise on. Um, and by and large, I think with, with few exceptions, the countries of Southeast Asia have, have made different choices, um, which is that 
um, on many issues where I think Australians would, would not want to compromise with China. They have decided that it suits their interests better to do so. And so I'm thinking of, you know, questions around to what extent do we criticise China in international forums or, um, you know, to what extent are we willing to allow investment in sensitive sectors? And so I think, you know, Australia's relationship is always with China, for example, it's always going to be different as a result of that. And it really links back to this question about, you know, why do we need, um, why do we need a defence force? Well, it's so that we can make ourselves to the maximum extent possible as free from coercion that will limit our, our ability to act internationally in the way that we want to. Um, so I guess that would be sort of just a, you know, a brief response to that question. But, you know, obviously there's a lot, a lot in that. And, and a short follow on on that, uh, uh, Susanna, um, from Nanda, um, the, the, the premise of his question is, does, does AUKUS signify that we are if you want, subcontracting our China policy. Um, I know that's been a bit of the commentary in the media as well. Um, you know, are we, are we not designing a China policy that is really squarely, squarely with, you know, framed with Australia's national interests in mind? Or are we buying into the US or even the, the UK's uh, framework vis-a-vis um, -vis China? Well, I think that the way that Australia wants the AUKUS arrangement to work is that we um, um, play our part in a sort of collective defence arrangement with the United States where we make a greater contribution as an ally. We hope that we will have some influence as a result of that. Um, and, um, you know, that's something that is very much kind of in keeping with the way that Australia has managed its alliance with the United States in, in recent years. So I, I, I guess I kind of, um, you know, I struggle with the premise of the question that, um, that, that the alliance necessarily means that we don't have our own defined sense of national interest in it. I think it is really important, like Peter mentioned earlier, to avoid the kind of the language around a forever partnership or an unbreakable alliance that then does sort of confuse the question between national interests and, and why we have an alliance. Um, but, you know, the reality is that successive Australian governments have, have viewed that the alliance is a, a key tool for promoting Australia's national interests. And I think AUKUS sort of reflects that, um, that view. And can I jump Great. in here? Yes, please. That's right. Um, I, I, I just wanted to add just to something uh, a little bit along this. Um, I certainly think the Australian government feels that it's buying into this AUKUS agreement with our own sovereignty in mind and question and our national interests at the, at the forefront of their mind. I mean, we can agree or disagree with, with the government's rationale or decision here, but like all of Australian foreign policy decisions about our decision to volunteer to go to the Vietnam War, about our decision, sovereign decision to get involved in wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, to get involved in peacekeeping in East Timor or in the South Pacific, these have been sovereign questions and decisions that our government has owned and, and they're accountable to the people of Australia, but 
one of the things that worries me when we discuss the US is this notion that we're forever outsourcing our security and we follow whatever the US tells us to do. These have been sovereign decisions of our own. And, and I think the sovereign decision question is key. We can, as I said, we can argue whether that's that's right or wrong, but the government, I, I honestly believe, is making this as, a, as part of what it believes is a sovereign decision in our strategic interests. But on saying that, I think the question here, I agree with Susanna, is a bit misplaced. It's not about a China policy or a China dealing issue. What Australia, I think, fundamentally lacks um, at the moment is an integrated national security strategy and approach. We have a series of bit point approaches to certain individual topics without an, a national narrative, without a vision, as she's talking about where, what type of power we want to be into the region. It's thoroughly, in my mind at the moment, uncoordinated. We're spending an extra $270 billion on defence over here and uh, adding nuclear-powered submarines, which the government has indicated they're going to not take out of that $270 billion but add more money, so we're going to spend even more money on defence. While we've undercut DFAT for going on 10 or 15 years now in terms of its funding and our ability to do diplomatic engagement, what we don't have an integrated energy and climate change policy in this country and of course, any national security strategy not only has to deal with the rise of China as a legitimate power, who we can't contain, but who we need to be able to work with in, in hopefully managing a, a peaceful coexistence in the region, along with a whole bunch of other countries. Um, I certainly don't see the China issue as a G2 issue with the United States as well. There's other key powers, like you mentioned, such as Japan and India, that are going to be very key. We're, we're entering into a much more multi-polar world in the US. I think even the US has realised it can't hold on to hegemony in the region, right? It's it's part of a balancing power in a multipolar region. We don't seem to have an integrated government approach to this. We have bits and pieces of, of, of this happening here and there. And, you know, the classic is climate change. I mean, you know, there's an, I think, as Mark mentioned in the chat, there's an opportunity cost of $100 billion with doing um, submarines versus doing climate change stuff. I actually think we have to do both. And the problem is there isn't an integrated policy approach for both. We've got a bit on submarines over here and a bit on defence spending over here, but we certainly don't have a unified action on climate, climate change under this government. And that is a major security issue. You can look at it in uh, all types of issues and you look at the Biden administration who's put this at the centre of their strategic policy, put it at the centre of their diplomatic efforts. And I think that's one of the fundamental problems with our country at the moment a lack of vision about who we are and where we're going and a lack of an integrated national security strategy to do that. I mean, that has to include the economy. It has to include universities. I mean, we have a government that's ideologically opposed to universities at the moment, but it talks at the same time of tech sharing agreements with the United States and the United Kingdom as central to our strategic future. Um, but, but there's a lack of coherency in that. And I think that's a really key problem. I'd like to to use that cue, the lack of coherency, uh, Peter, that you mentioned, and 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 to you, um, to you, Hugh, again in the questions that have come in, but also a theme tonight has been, and 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 it goes to your point of of lack of coherence, Peter, is, and in this decision, this AUKUS decision, and and sometimes in the way that we deal with China is we don't appear to have the pieces put together. Like, for example, everyone's talk about the French. What diplomatic cost of annoying the French are we going to bear? Um, our political masters seem to appear to kind of gloss over that. 
Um, another example, one of the questions that came in from Cameron is, yes, we can, we should be able to do difficult things in the region and still have good relations with China. And the example that he gives is Singapore being able to train very closely with the Taiwanese uh, militarily. Um, why can't, for want of a better word, I know I'm sounding a bit trite, why can't we uh, walk and chew gum at the same time? Um, and, and in this particular decision, could we have done something better to keep the French on side? They're after, after all a P5 uh, country, they're a, a nuclear power, they're you know, they a force in the, in the South Pacific. Yes, look, I think uh, the answer is we certainly could have, and I think it's worth thinking about that at several levels. I think the, uh, it, it's clear that the, that the diplomacy with France was, was really appallingly maladroit. I mean, one shouldn't, one shouldn't treat a serious country this way. But I also think it's worth digging a little bit deeper into that because, and this does go to the points that, uh, that both Peter and Susanna touched on. I, I, I do think right at the heart of our challenge today is that we don't have a vision for the kind of relationship we want to have with China when China is the most powerful country in the world. Our model for the relationship we want to have with China is the relationship we used to have with China, the relationship we had under John Howard, when China still accepted America as a dominant power globally and in our region. And that was nice. That was very good for Australia. That, that, was the, that was the time when we didn't have to choose between America and China. Remember, that's what our political leaders kept on telling us. And it was wrong. It was wrong because China no longer accepts American leadership and we have to learn to live with that new China. And we might want to go, we might want it to go away, but we have to live with the reality of China's power. The difference between us and Singapore or us and Vietnam, or even in their way, the very, the very special way, us and Japan, is that they understand they're going to have to learn to live with a powerful China. Whereas the way in which I believe we've been dealing with China in some of the, I think, very maladroit diplomacy that our government has, has um, uh, undertaken over, particularly over the last 18 months, seems to me to be embedded in the same idea which is embedded in Washington, which somehow is we can make China go back to what it used to be. We can make China go back to the country that bided its time and, hide it and hid its power and didn't challenge the United States was... Um, uh, in uh, Zelik's famous phrase, a responsible stakeholder in a US-led war, the world. Th that, that China has gone. It's never coming back. And, and I think that, that until Australia learns to understand that we're, we're living in an Asia in which China is going to be an exceptionally important country, the most important country in the world to us, and we're going to have to learn to live with it, and that means learning to live with a whole lot of things we don't like, well, that's the world we're in. If we don't like that, <laughs> we've got a real problem. And I think, uh, you know, this does go to the points that, sort of points that Peter was making. There's some much deeper questions underlying the, the way we approach uh, defence cooperation on particular issues like submarines with, uh, with, 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 with America. And I think we need to think our way through those deeper questions. And that's something that our political leaders on both sides of politics have been very reluctant to do. Both sides of politics have been trying to tell us, even the year before last still, Scott Morrison was still saying, we don't have to choose between America and China. Uh, of course we do. Not just, not, we should avoid a kind of a blank binary, all with China or all with America, but making complex choices about how we navigate this very difficult world ahead. 
you bet. That's, that, they are the most demanding diplomatic choices, strategic choices Australia has ever faced in its history. I think you, um, we've come almost, we've come to time. I'll, I'm going to give an opportunity to, to Peter and Susanna to say, uh, uh, you know, some last observations, but, but that I think, you know, that encapsulates, I think in my mind, one of the major strategic challenges, cha strategic diplomatic and almost existential challenges that we have as a nation. Um, so um, we are going to finish up, uh, but I'll give, uh, uh, and I'll, I'll go to Peter this time first for some closing observations, and then I'll we'll finish up with you, Susanna. Please go ahead, Peter. Um, <clears throat> I, I just might finish very quickly um, on that, that sovereignty question. As I said, I, I do think we've made sovereign decisions. There's sovereign decisions in Australian foreign policy that we've had to own over many years. I don't see this as the issue um, that many in the media in particular have raised. As I said, AUKUS is not an alliance. If, if, you, if you look down deeply into that, and it's not, it's not hard to read, it's a very short document <laughs> about what it, what it says, um, is about that technology transfer. And it's also about, um, you know, defence technology transfer, Tomahawk missiles, standoff uh, attack munitions, hypersonics, precision guided weapons, accelerated guided weapons and manufacturing and a shipbuilding talent pool. They, these are the really things that is at the heart of this agreement around some security and technology um, transfer. That said, the sovereignty question that people have raised is a good and key and important question for us to continue to raise. We need to work closely with our allies and partners. We need to gain as many advantages as we can. And I think we gain a lot more from the US alliance than, um, than its cost on the, on the balance of things. And every government since 1951 has has come down on that part of the, the cost-benefit analysis um, ledger. And I think it's going to be crucially important to us in the question that there's sort of expectations um, management um, and expectation gaps in the alliance could become a lot bigger than what we actually think, certainly far bigger than the rhetoric of a forever and unbreakable alliance is. As, as we move to the, or as we have moved to the Indo-Pacific being the centre of Australian strategic policy, and the centre of interest for global um, uh, competition as well. We're entering a new phase, as Hugh said, that's fundamentally different to any time in our past. We've been easily able to pivot ANZUS and our relationship with the United States in the past, because throughout the period since, you know, since the Battle of the Philippine Sea in 1944, the US was the dominant maritime hegemonic power in the region. That's no more. This is a very different world and a very different region, and we need to adapt, and that will that adaptation will have in, in, happen in different ways in the coming future. This, uh, future. That's why I think it's, uh, it's really key to, to look at that, that broader integrated approach to that strategy that we need to think about and what type of role. And I think that needs to include broader elements than a focus just on China. It has to in, involve the way we see ourselves as, a, as an economy in the region, the way we want to structure that economy and as a society, and the way we want to deal with the question Susanna pointed out, what, what, how do we deal, as she says, with, with, with a China and a changing in different region and order with different countries responding to those changing in power structures in different ways? And what is we as a country willing to accept, look the other way on, and which, which questions we're, we are absolutely core to our values and our beliefs that we need to stand firm on? And these are, are really big problematic questions that we'll have to face. And, and this is only going to get harder and not easier, is my sus suspicion. Thank you, Peter. Susanna. 
just very briefly, I mean, I agree with um, what Hugh and, and Peter both said, that we are in a very different region to the one that we once were. And I think Australians have been told that for some time now by our political leaders that, you know, we face the most grave strategic environment that, that um, you know, that Australia has ever faced. Um, and I think with the AUKUS decision and the way that Australia acted, in my view, quite uncharacteristically in terms of, um, you know, developing the idea in secret, throwing over the French in such an unceremonious way, Australia was sort of, I think people felt that for the first time, that, um, that yes, things have changed and Australia um, is um, sort of trying to adapt to this new world. But I, you know, very much agree with, um, with what Peter has said that we need to have the, the diplomacy and the other aspects of, of national power to enable us to sort of manage that transition um, in, in, in an appropriate way. Um, and part of that, I think, is that our government needs to have uh, more open conversations with Australians about what the purpose of um, projects such as the submarines are and, and how they relate to our sort of broader investments in, in diplomacy. Um, and, and our national power more generally. Fantastic. Look, uh, I've had a, a, quite a few other questions that unfortunately we didn't have time to directly address uh, this evening. Um, we've gone across the hour. It was programmed for an hour. I, I thank you for your patience and staying with us for a bit longer. Um, can I take this opportunity to really thank uh, our panelists tonight, uh, Susanna Patton, Peter Dean, and Hugh White, it's been a, a fantastic discussion. Um, we could go on talking about this for a few more hours. I think that the, the richness of the issues and the complexity uh, that the question poses is, is something that's gonna occupy uh, all of us for a, a good little while as we digest this decision. We, we, we hope to be able to get you um, on another uh, session uh, in a similar topic and we can review it when once we've had some time and as the country has had time and the region has had time to digest this momentous, uh, this momentous decision and the announcements that have followed. Uh, I thank you, I thank the audience for uh, spending um, uh, an hour with us tonight. I also like to thank Ash Jones, who, who's the producer and who's put this together. Uh, I look forward to uh, having you as guests um, the audience and uh, the speakers as uh, as speakers again at another event, hopefully in a post-COVID uh, era live here in Perth. Uh, and we would we will also wait for your return, Peter, uh, when COVID allows it. Uh, wish you all a good evening and uh, speak to you all and see you all soon. Thank you.